Good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. Uh, join with me, if you will, as we uh, set our hearts on the Lord, as we get ready to meditate on his word and, and hear from the scriptures. Most holy God, we come to your presence, Lord. To rest in your presence, to ask that your spirit would be here with us. Lord, we ask that you would transform us through the listening of your word. Father, we, I ask this morning that each one of us would come face to face with you, the most holy God, Lord, and we would fall on our knees and say, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Father, we ask that you would banish the spirit of fear that grips our country, Father. Lord, we know our enemy isn't flesh and blood. Lord, we know that there is no one in this world that isn't just a captive to the evil one. And Lord, as children of light, we thank you that we are set free, that our minds are free, that we are not enslaved by the same madness that grips everyone else. And Father, I pray that rather than cowering in fear, Lord, that we would be bold and brave in your spirit, Father, that we would be willing to suffer even, even to the point of shedding blood, our own blood, Lord, for the sake of everyone that is our neighbor, Father, Lord, for those that are, are lovely and those that are unlovely, Lord, for those that society deems worthy and those that society discards. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness and courage to speak out against structures and systems of injustice, Father, that you would give us boldness and courage to love one another well. And Father, that we would never forget who our real enemy is and that it is not the men and women and the children that we see in our lives around us. Father, we thank you so much for the spirit of boldness and truth and freedom. We just pray that you would be with us present this morning and you would transform us through your word. Amen. Good morning. My name is Bobby and I'm also one of the pastors here at Northwest. And uh, on Sunday mornings um, over the last couple months, we have been talking here about following Jesus. Following Jesus as individuals, following Jesus as a community of people who are being shaped and formed by Jesus. That following Jesus isn't just coming to church on Sundays. Uh, it's not just doing some good things throughout the week. It's not even just simply knowing or believing the right things. But that following Jesus means that in all of who we are, we are being shaped and we are being formed by Jesus. That it is a process of being changed, transformed by God into the men and the women that he has created us to become. And over the last few weeks, we've been specifically talking about how does that change happen? How does God transform us? What are the catalysts that God uses to transform us, to shape us, to make us and form us into the people that he has created us to be. And this morning is a heavy topic uh, because this morning we are going to talk about the reality that God changes us through suffering. 
God changes us. God transforms us. God shapes us through suffering. And I think it's important to say a few things um, here before we actually dive in about suffering. When you look at the scriptures, you will see that the scriptures talk about suffering kind of in two streams, if you will. The first being what you could call passive suffering, physical pain, emotional burdens, injustices that we endure, suffering that we didn't choose, suffering that is not um, a, a choice that we have made or, or a result of something that we have done, but suffering that plagues us and that plagues men and women all over this world for as long as this world has been around that is just part of life. But there's also suffering that we experience by choice. Suffering that comes by persecution for choosing to follow Jesus. Spiritual attack from Satan, from our flesh, from the world around us. The loss of relationships that sometimes we experience because we are following Jesus. Suffering that comes through sacrifice, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. The second thing I just think is important to acknowledge is that when we talk about change and transformation coming through suffering, we run the risk of making it sound like pain and sorrow and suffering aren't really real. That it's just something that happens, but we put a smiley face on it, or we have a cute bumper sticker slogan that we say when things don't go the way that we want them to go or other people are experiencing hard things. But we don't do that because the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible never treats suffering as anything but real, as anything but life-altering. The Bible gives voice to the cries of those who suffer. When you think about the Psalms, the, the book of the Bible that probably most reflects what it means to experience life, there are more Psalms, there are more expressions of lament, pain, sorrow, cries for deliverance than any other topic that is addressed in the Psalms. And most importantly, and this is where we're going to end today, the Bible tells us of a God who suffered, a God who experienced pain and grief and sorrow. The next thing I think it's important to talk about is that suffering isn't academic. Suffering is not abstract. We aren't machines. That when we talk about suffering, we talk about it in a very personal way. We talk about it in a very real way. Because as we've seen over the last couple months and as we've talked about here on Sunday morning, we are 
What it means to be a person is that we are people who think. We are people who feel. We are people who make decisions. We are people who live in an actual, physical, tangible body. We are people who live in a social context, in relationships with other people. And it's through all of that being a whole person through all of those aspects and facets of being who we are, that is the lens through which we experience suffering. I was reading an author this week and he said, you never just suffer the thing that you're suffering, but you always also suffer the way you're suffering that thing. And we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. And so I want you to know that as I talk about this, I'm talking about it coming from a place that is deeply personal. I know that there are those of you in this room who have suffered deeply. I know that some of you are suffering currently. And I want you to know that I'm talking about this this morning because I love you and because I've experienced your love to me as I've suffered and experience pain in my own life. And then just the last caveat that I want to make is that this sermon is woefully incomplete. Uh, We are talking about something that is deep, that is personal, that is life-altering, life-changing, something that is huge and something that has been a reality uh, since the garden, since sin entered this world. And this sermon is not the be-all, end-all of how God changes us through suffering. And so I just want to say that up front for my own protection, but also for your expectations this morning, that this is a, that this is a conversation starter, uh, not a conversation ender. Uh, I want to look at two passages this morning, and I'm not really going to like go through these verse by verse. I want to pull out a few things. The, the first passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and you can use a Bible around you if you want to use a physical copy with that, and you'll find that on page 562. And then I want to jump forward to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want to, you to hear what Paul the Apostle says about his own life. Um, how he views what he has experienced, the pain and the suffering that he has experienced in connection to his life as an apostle. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying the body in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For, we, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now listen to these words from chapter 12. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul is giving us a picture of what his life was like as an apostle. The things that he endured, the things that he faced, the suffering that he experienced, that part of his commission to preach the gospel came with suffering. And what Paul was saying here is that he recognized after experiencing all of this suffering that it would be very easy for him to see that what God had commissioned him to do, that what God was able to do in the life of other people, he could easily take credit for. He could easily take credit for. And that's the first thing I want us to see here is that suffering exposes our delusion of being in control. 
Suffering exposes our delusion of being in control. Paul begins this by saying, to show we have this treasure in jars of clay, talking about what God has done in the gospel, the message of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, that we have that and yet we are fragile. We are vulnerable. We are weak. He says that this treasure in jars of clay is to show to us that the power belongs to God and not to us. The power belongs to God and not to us. And Paul is recognizing a fundamental truth as he looks at his life, as he looks at what God has called him to do, as he looks at his success in what God has called him to do. He recognizes this. We are not big or in control, but small and dependent. We are not big and in control, but we are small and dependent. And how do we know that? Because if we were in control, we would never suffer, right? If you were in control of your life, if you were in control of this world, you would never choose for yourself especially to experience suffering. But because we experience suffering, because we experience our weaknesses and are confronted with those things, it is a message from God to us that you are not in control. My dad's sister um, was an amazing lady. She, uh, my dad's 80, almost 83. So his, and he was the baby of his family. So his sister was really she was born, I think, back in the teens, and um, she taught in a one-room schoolhouse in West Virginia before World War II. When the war started, she left that, joined the Red Cross, and traveled all over the world uh, during the war, helping soldiers, part of the army. And then after the war, she continued to work with the Red Cross. And you can imagine the things that she saw the things that she experienced, the people that she came in contact with. And after my dad became a Christian, he relentlessly witnessed to her about Jesus, talked to her about God, shared with her the things that God was doing in his life. And she would always listen, and she would always respond politely. But the one thing that she kept saying over and over and over again is this, I can't believe in a God who would allow what I've seen to happen. I can't believe in a God who would allow the things to happen that I've seen and experienced. And on one hand, there's a lot of truth in that. Because Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has given us a sense of eternity as human beings. That there's something about us because we have been created by God that makes us look at brokenness and injustice and suffering and pain and says that is not good. That is not right. That shouldn't be. And so all of us, should be able to look at these things and say, there's something wrong with that. 
That's not how life should be. We should feel something when we know what we're seeing and experiencing isn't right. But I want you to listen to that statement again. I can't believe because of what I have seen. We define what should or shouldn't be and how God should or shouldn't act. I was in college ministry before I started working at SOMA. And I would sit with college students who would tell me of their unbelief in God. And I had ne- I'd never met a college student. And I've never met someone not a college student who claimed to not believe in God strictly because of what their mind told them was right. It was always rooted in what they had experienced, what they had seen, what life had taught them. There may be, but I have not met an intellectual, a truly intellectual atheist. Because what we often do is we experience these things that we say, this is not right. This is not how it should be. This is wrong. And so often we go to the place and we say, if God was really God, he would see these things the same way I see them. If God was really God, he would do what I think he should do. It's natural for us. It's natural for us to put ourselves in judgment over God. Think about Job. If you've read the book of Job, you know Job is kind of like put up as the classic example of what it means for a person to suffer. And if you read the book of Job, you'll read like Job, I mean, he lost everything. He lost his entire life. And he's moping around and kind of like, why did this happen to me? Like, I, I, look, I've been faithful to God. I've done all these right things. I'm a good person. I deserve better than this. And then Job has his three friends that come, and, and they just are like, Job, you, you know, you just got to think about this logically. You got to think about it rationally. You got to believe the right things. It doesn't matter, you know, all these things. It's just like, you know, get on board with who God is. And, and they just botch this whole thing. And Job is like, man, I, what's the point? Maybe I should just give up and die. You know, God doesn't care about me. If I did all this good stuff and I'm still experiencing this, what is the point? Maybe I, it would have been better for me if I hadn't even been born. But listen to this interchange in Job chapter 40 between Job and God. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I put my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer. I've spoken twice, but I won't speak anymore. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. 
Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? Listen to this. That you may be in the right. God calls Job on the carpet and he says, what are you doing, Job? You are questioning me because you believe that you define what is right. That you define what is true. That you define what is good. Suffering exposes the elevated view that we often have of ourselves. It's easy for us to sit in these settings and when life is good and talk about how holy God is, how other God is. But when we get down to, you know, just like the, the, the street level view of our lives, when the rubber meets the road, when we experience pain and suffering, we tend to then treat God like a friend that we're having a disagreement with. And we say, God, I know I'm right and I don't understand how you can't see that I'm right. But the truth of the matter is this. We can't judge God. We can't judge God. He is outside of time and space. God is outside. He lives in a different reality than our concept of reality. Listen, I can't make sense of how God can hate pain, can hate suffering, and can hate death, and yet allow and even send those things into the lives of people he loves. I have no answer for that. And I shouldn't have any answer for that because I am not God. I don't see what God sees. I don't know what God knows. I don't live in the reality that God lives Listen, God invites all of our questions. God invites us to come with all of our questions, but he wants us to be clear that there's really only one answer, that he is God and that we are not. Secondly, suffering exposes what we really trust. Suffering exposes what we really trust. Listen to what Paul says again in chapter 12, just to give you some context, Paul talks about that God has given him a dream and a vision, uh, a, a revelation, he says. And so in order that Paul wouldn't be puffed up and think, man, I'm better than everybody else. God's talking to me. God's sending me things. God's using me in great ways. Paul says in verse seven, so to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. There's no reason to think that what Paul is talking about is anything other than physical, a physical ailment, a physical pain, a physical suffering. We can take a lot of pride in the following things, our health, our financial freedom, our job, the clarity of mind that we have to make decisions and to respond to things that happen in our lives. 
the relational support that we have of family and of friends. And all of these things are things that we lean into, right? When life gets hard, when difficult decisions come up, when, when, when uh, 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 financial burdens happen. In our, all of these things are, are things that we look at as positives and resources and, 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 and safety nets in our lives. But when what we trust is taken away, we not only suffer the loss of that thing, we suffer the loss of the security that it provided us. It's not only that God took my job away, but now he took the security of knowing how I'm going to provide for my family. It's not only that God took my mom from me, but it's the peace that I had from talking with her when life was difficult. We not only lose the thing that God takes away, that pain and suffering take away, but we lose the security and the peace and the comfort that we had in that thing. Imagine how a physical disability would have affected Paul's life as an apostle. I mean, just read the book of Acts and what Paul is doing. He's traveling all the time. He's speaking and preaching and meeting with people. He's having to make a tent sometimes. He was a tent maker to to help offset the cost, to help support himself, to be able to do the, the ministry that God had called him to do. And then all of a sudden, there is something that makes that all the more difficult. I don't know what that was. I don't know specifically what that ailment was, but I know from reading his words here, it wasn't an easy thing to get over. He pleaded with God to take it away. It's easy for us to take credit for what God has given us and what he can only do. The blessings that you have in your life, the opportunities that you can take advantage of, the the successes that you've experienced. And here is the fatal flaw in our thinking. What I have, I will always have. And what hasn't happened to me yet, won't. What I have, I will always have. I'll always have my physical health. I'll always be able to go to the gym and work out I'll always be able to take a walk around my neighborhood. I will always have this career that I've worked so hard for. I haven't experienced loss yet. I haven't had someone close to me die yet. Now we know that, you know, if we were really, really, really honest, we know that that's not true. We know that things can change in an instant. But how many of us actually live our lives in that reality? We just go along that nothing's going to change. Everything's going to stay the same. Who I am now and what I have now, I'm just going to keep rolling along. Things that should drive us to thankfulness and greater dependence on God become sources of great pride and security for us. And we fail to recognize the fragile. The fragile can be gone like that. What you have can be gone tomorrow. The opportunity that you're looking forward to may never happen. 
What we should fear most is not being weak, but convincing ourselves that we're strong. What we should fear most is not weakness, but it's being, it's living in the delusion that I don't need help. That I can do it on my own. That I'm immune to the harsh realities of life. Paul understood what life really was. I mean, listen, he talks in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, though our outer self is wasting away. Chapter 5, verse 1, that our, our, our tent, our body, our earthly home is, is always, always on the verge of being destroyed. That in verse 2, that in this body we groan and we long for being perfect, for not having to experience the things of this life. In, in, in verse 4, again, that groaning and that longing. You can have a right theology but that street-level expectation can kill us. That life won't touch us. That life, the things that other people experience, that somehow I'm immune to that. That what has been the reality of living in this world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years won't really happen to me. And if they do, and when these things do happen, when we experience suffering, when we experience pain, when something that we love is taken away from us, if our trust is in who we are and what we have and what we can do, life hits us like a ton of bricks because our expectations were wrong. Listen, suffering is more powerfully shaped by what's in our hearts than what's in our body and in the world around us. Say that again. Suffering is more powerfully shaped by what's in our hearts than what we experience in our body and what the world around us can do to us. Because what we really trust in our hearts will be exposed. If we're prideful people, when those things that we took great pride in, our health, our career, our family, our financial situation, when those things are taken away, we panic because we're faced with our smallness. We're faced with our weakness. We're faced with our vulnerability. We feel out of control. When our self and who we are is tied to what we have. When what we have is taken away, we lose ourselves, And we don't know what to do. We don't know how to make sense of who we are, what we're experiencing, how to make sense of life. When we experience the harsh reality that life isn't primarily about us, that's when so many of us can experience a crisis of faith. Because we can't understand how what we see as good for us couldn't be God's number one concern. We don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do with that. And that leads me to the third thing. That suffering exposes us to traps of temptation. 
traps of temptation. Look at chapter 4 again. Look at what Paul says here. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then chapter 5, verse 6, we are always of good courage. We walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are always of good courage. Paul talks about being crushed, being in despair, feeling forsaken, experiencing doubt, living paralyzed by fear. Because those are all possibilities for us. That when we face suffering, these are all things that we can experience. This is, these are all realities that we can live in. Paul says we are of good courage. We take courage. We walk by faith because it is possible for us to live our lives the opposite way. To live in fear and anxiety and not courage. To only see what is in front of us instead of the things that we can't see. We need to understand, as we've seen, that we aren't in control and we are never on our own when life is good, when we are experiencing all the blessings of this life. And the same thing is true when we are suffering and in pain. We aren't in control. We aren't on our own. That when we suffer, we suffer as people who were made in the image of God. That when we suffer, we suffer as people living in a world that is under God's sovereign rule. That when we suffer, for those of us who are Christians, we suffer as people who are deeply, deeply loved. As sons and as daughters of God. And how we perceive God in the midst of, in the midst of suffering. That, that God is inextricably connected to our suffering. That how we perceive God's involvement or his uninvolvement. God's purpose for our pain and for our suffering. And his, or his distance from our pain. And from our suffering. God's ability or God's care for us and his ability to, to deliver us and give us comfort in that. Or God's callousness and his coldness and his inability to do anything about our suffering. How we perceive those things has a profound effect on our experience of suffering. And how we perceive those things is directly tied to the reality that we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. As I was preparing this this morning, um, I got to this point, I just, I felt a real heaviness. As I thought about the words of Jesus in John 8, verse 44, and Jesus is talking to the religious leaders who are plotting to kill him. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar. 
and the father of lies. When we experience pain and we experience suffering, we need to understand that the devil is a murderer. That his desire is to see you suffer. To die slowly and painfully. To dismember you. To make you feel those cuts. He lies because he wants you to be afraid and for your life to be paralyzed by fear. He lies because he wants to plant seeds of doubt. He lies because he wants you to feel alone and to feel forsaken. That God doesn't see you, that no one else sees you, and that you will have to suffer all by yourself. He lies because he wants you to be eaten up by bitterness and to not know or experience God's goodness or the goodness of others. He lies because he wants to crush you with despair, to watch you live under the weight of believing that there is no hope and that there is no way out. The devil is cruel and he takes pleasure in watching you die. Suffering is dangerous because it leaves us vulnerable to these temptations. It leaves us vulnerable to the attacks of an enemy who wants to kill us. And when we defiantly run into these traps and choose to believe what the devil is telling us, or we are subtly pulled into them, the result is the same. We will experience a disillusionment with life and with God and we will experience a hardness of heart that will destroy us and the relationships that we have with others. But lastly and thankfully, there's hope. There's hope because suffering opens us to God's transformation and leads us to real comfort, real power, and real hope. Listen to these words again from Paul in chapter 12. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. My, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A theology of suffering, which is what we're talking about here. How should we think about suffering? How does God want us to think about suffering is never an end in itself. 
A theology of suffering always forces us away from platitudes and bumper stickers and putting a smile on everything and points us to standing face to face with the resurrected Jesus. Standing face to face with the resurrected Jesus. A Jesus who from his birth suffered. Who was born in a stall with animals. Who had to flee with his parents to another country because the king wanted to kill him. He was homeless and displaced for two years. He suffered being despised and being rejected by people who knew him, his own family. He suffered the cruel injustice of being arrested and beaten and tortured, all the while the friends that were closest to him betrayed him, turned away, and forsook him. He was executed as a criminal, and as he hung on the cross, his father turned his back on him. I would venture to say this morning, no matter how hard your life is, how hard my life is, I don't think any of us would choose to trade our life for Jesus's life. Jesus not only suffered a couple of things, he suffered all things. Jesus not only suffered for a season of his life, he suffered his entire life from birth to death. The Bible refers to our Savior, the God of the universe, the King of kings, as a man of sorrow, intimate, familiar with, if you will, friend, a friend of grief and pain and suffering. When we cry out in pain, we know that the one who hears us has experienced pain. When we ask for relief from our suffering, we know that the one who hears us has suffered. We know that when we go to him, when we are hearing the lies of the enemy who wants to destroy us, that the one who hears us has heard those same lies. And we know that because he lives, we can live too. We do not have to be crushed. We do not have to be perplexed. We do not have to live in despair. We do not have to believe that we are forsaken because he lives, we can live. And that is why when Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses, Paul's not putting on some Jesus juke for us. He's not trying to say and sound all super spiritual. Paul is saying, in my weakness, I can be confident because I know that my Savior has been weak. I know that my Savior has suffered. I know that my Savior has experienced pain and his grace to me in the moment, in the seasons, in the lifetime of suffering and pain is that he will not leave me. He will not forsake me. He understands, he sees, and he has the power that I need 
to endure what I'm experiencing. When we ask him for help, he lives and we can live too. What we've been talking about over the last few weeks is how God changes us through suffering. We have his spirit inside of us, the power, the power we need to endure suffering. God has given us his word to help us know what is true and to not give in to the lies of our enemy. He has given us each other. That when we are suffering and when we are in pain, we can be known. We can be loved. That the grace of God can be incarnate in the way that we treat each other and support each other. God sees us. God knows us. God has not left us alone to suffer. And through suffering, God begins to move us from a place where we find ourselves as sufficient. We find other things as our Savior to a point where we continuously more and more and more recognize our need for him and his power to help us in the midst of our suffering and our pain. It's been said that we never really know that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. We never really know that Jesus is all we need until we look around and we realize that Jesus is all we have. As we come to this this morning, we come to it knowing that the suffering of Jesus allows us to come and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice because we know that our life is not of our own making, that our relationship with God is not because of our own strength, but it's actually because of our weakness. It's God's power made perfect in our weakness, that Jesus suffered, that Jesus died, so that people who had no way to be right with God could live. If you are a Christian this morning, I invite you to come and to take this knowing that your Savior knows you, knowing that your Savior understands what you're going through, and knowing that there is hope because he died, because he rose again, and because he is coming back again. If you're not a Christian this morning, don't come. This is not magic. This is not some spiritual thing here that's going to get you right with God. It's simply a symbol that reflects where our trust is, where our hope is, who our hope is in. And we would love as a church community to talk to you about that and to help you see God and to experience the love that God has for you in Jesus. If this has stirred some stuff up and you want to talk, please Myself, Pastor Nate, Pastor Andrew, we would love to talk to you. We'd love to help carry the burden that you're carrying. We'd love to help encourage you and pray for you. If you're suffering now, if you're grieving now, let me pray. God, we thank you for the hope. We thank you that 
that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that we do not have, we are not equipped in and of ourselves to face suffering. We are not equipped to help each other live through suffering. But in your grace, you have made the power of your spirit available to us. And I pray that as individuals and as a community, we would be a refuge for those who suffer, that we would be a safe place for those who are in pain and who are hurting, that we would be a place of comfort for those who are grieving because we find our hope in you. I pray that we would not pretend that pain and bad things exist, uh, don't exist, but that we would embrace them as reality and that we would embrace the hope that we have that you have overcome the world. In Jesus' name, amen.